0: special guest. Thank you for joining us. Arthur Solomon here with the Solomon Group. We've got Tim Sisler here today and we have a very special guest all the way from Lafayette, Louisiana. We have Chris Rude, and this man has been really dominating the real estate uh, space. He's been really done a little bit of everything from wholesaling to flipping houses to mobile home investments. Now he's doing, he's got a coaching program. Dude is just on fire. He's a patriot. He loves this country. He loves the second amendment. We're very excited and grateful to have him on the show today. Welcome on the show, Chris.
1: Thank you, man. Appreciate you guys, uh, you Yankees, having a, having a rebel on.
0: Hey, hey man. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself and the viewers that don't know who you are and, and how you got started in the real estate?
1: Well, I've always been, uh, I'd say, entrepreneurial in a sense from the time I was shitting. I remember in fourth, fifth grade uh, selling baseball, basketball cards out of the back of my book sack on on a spot price as though I was selling them as what they would be valued in the future selling. I would, so to speak of the, it was a matter of fact, it was a Shaquille O'Neal rookie card. And I was like, man, this, you buy this card now it will be worth, you know, you, 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 give me five bucks for it. Now it will be worth $20 in the future. So I always had a knack for, you know, sales and, um, was selling even when I was, didn't even know what I was doing. Right. It just did it naturally. So, was kind of a hard-headed kid, very hyperactive, very, very energetic, very obnoxious. Um, didn't, couldn't control myself um, at a young age. I was labeled ADHD, ADD, can't sit still, slow, somewhat, uh, you know, estranged in a sense because I was just different. Right, I had so much energy I didn't know what to do with it. So put me on Adderall and really at a young age, which is terrible for you parents that are even considering putting your kids on that kind of horse shit it, it, it's uh, it's it's basically legalized crystal meth is what it is for kids and it's a way for white collar criminals like you know big pharma that owns pfizer all these other big companies and stuff for a way for them to sell crystal meth legally to kids and it gets it screws their head up right and the problem is a lot of those kids are very capable and able kids so i'm kind of digressing but that was kind of my story got put on adderall rillin turned me into a zombie made me all you know tweaked out, couldn't, uh, couldn't eat, couldn't hardly sleep. And it, and it kind of, I'd say um, paralyzed my personality of who I really was and kind of crippled along through high school, junior high and end up kind of got into recreational drugs. And, um, you know, was fucking up, you know, from probably set from 17 to 22, I'd say I was a rock star with no guitar. Um, just doing a lot of crazy shit um, was kind of a wild kid. And, actually got my girlfriend pregnant my wife now patty pregnant when i was a junior in high school at like a private catholic school uh and kind of was shit I, I was just i wasn't i wasn't the ideal model kid right but um we still very um energetic I, I could talk to anybody and 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 I, and I think that carried along but by the time i was 22 i kind of hit rock bottom you know checked myself into actual rehab to get myself off of drugs, um, mostly Adderall, which I was addicted to by that point. And uh, from there, I knew I had hit rock bottom at 22. I was like, I'm fucking up. I'm better than this. I know I'm better than this. And I checked myself into a a rehabilitation clinic, detox from all the Adderall had been taken for like 12 years and uh, started my life over and got rid of all my loser friends that I hung out with and partied with. I, I just cut everybody out of my life. And I deep dived personal development. I literally read every book I could read on business, on leadership, on uh, personal responsibility, on ethics, on integrity that I could get my hands on. And my life started improving. And uh, and I wanted to start a business, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I just wanted, I, knew, I just knew I was too too hard headed to work for anybody because I just I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So I was like, what kind of business can I start? Well, I was working for my dad at the time. He sent me to a oil change place to get one of the company vehicles, oil change. And I saw the people complaining about it taking too long. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start an on-site oil change business going to people's houses. And I'm going to go change their oil while they're at their house or at their work where they don't have to leave. I bet you I can make a good amount of money, right? And this is why I think I'm a sophomore, junior in college at the time. So I made a, made a, a bunch of cards. Borrowed a hundred bucks from my dad. Never even knew how to change oil. Asked my dad to show me how to change oil. And his personal truck, it was the first time I ever changed oil. It's his truck. I was like, this is simple. I mean, just unscrew the freaking oil. Let it drain out, change the filter. Add oil. So I started going around handing out business cards to everybody while I was in college and picked up a lot of accounts. Shit, I picked up so many accounts. By the time I was a senior in college, uh, about to graduate, I was making a hundred grand a year. You know, now I had graduated to doing other things. Like I was doing on-site uh, rock chip repair and windshield replacements and detailing vehicles. And I had like uh, two or three people working for me at the time by the time I graduated college. And I picked up all these oil field accounts because I live here in South Louisiana. There's tons of oil field accounts I, and my family knew a lot of oil field people. So we, I, I picked up a bunch of fleet accounts and that's how I was doing so well with it. By the time I graduated college in 05, I said, shit, I'm not getting a job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scale this. So graduated college, um, started to really push hard and I was making really good money, but I got burned out. I was like, you know, I can't scale this going around on site, trying to do all this and, and realize that I needed some physical locations. Then came probably t- 2006, 2007, when the, when the real estate was booming. I don't know how old you guys are. We had the 2008 crash. In 2007, I noticed that I had my house that I had built a spec house, like four or five years prior to that, that the house I bought was worth a ton of money more than what, more than what uh, I had paid for it. So I was like, you know what? And this is a lot when, you know, flip my house was going on, like all these TV shows, HDTV shows. And you know, this is before flipping got real popular. I was like, I told my wife, I said, I bet you we could you know flip our house and make a lot of money. So we painted a few rooms we uh, landscaped the front, put it on MLS, and we sold it in 30, 30 days. I made 125000 at 25 years old, flipping my first house. Now, keep in, keep, in, keep in mind, the market was already hot because of you know the the run-up on real estate. But we had the Hurricane Katrina had happened in, in I think, 2005 or 2006, and it displaced everybody from New Orleans. They came westward to Baton Rouge, Lafayette, and Houston. So- on top of the market being super high, we had that flood of people. So we had like the du- double the appreciation because we had no inventory. The market was hot and we had an influx of hundreds of thousands of people getting displaced that needed housing. So that's how I was able to get so much appreciation that fast and we sold. I took that $125,000 at 25 years old and I bought a physical location from a motivated seller that owned a mechanic shop in Quicklube. We paid um, – we paid 860,000 for it. I got an SBA loan, put down the 125 grand, got that location and uh, we doubled our income right away. Now, prior to that, I had, I did buy another, I, I say I bought, I, I rented out another location before that from another motivated seller that I caught when I wasn't paying his rent. So I found out who the landlord was and said, Hey, look, if you kick him out, I'll just come in and I'll, I'll make sure you get paid. So I already had one location, but I didn't own it. I was renting it, double my income. And I did that. Then I, um, I, I doubled the income when I bought when I actually bought my, my my second location. So did that 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 was kind of my my entry into real estate, right? I was 25, 26 when we made all that money, and we dumped it all into that that location. Fantastic location in the middle of Lafayette here on a busy busy street called Johnson Street. Like sixty thousand cars pass there a day. Well, I, I was like, man, there's something to this real estate game. But I didn't at the time I didn't know what I was doing. It was pure luck. It was pure timing, right? Everybody looked like a genius in 05 and 06, right? Before the crash, because you could buy real estate and then three months later make a bunch of money. That was pure luck. I'm not saying that I, that was skill or talent. Pure timing. Well, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this again. Well, I bought a piece of well, I bought a, a a piece of property in the Bayou, you know, the Bayou. It's not a river, it's not a creek, it's like a muddy channel of water here in South Louisiana bought that with the intentions of building a house, changed my mind, sold that three months later, made 40 grand on that, used that to, to, to buy another shop as a down payment. Uh, actually, I didn't buy that one. I leased another one. So we had three shops. Then I, the, the, from the house that we had sold that I made 125,000, I bought a foreclosure. We rehabbed that house, lived in it 18 months, flipped that, made 65,000, used that to buy another shop. So I had four locations. Well, I scaled my, my quick lube car wash mechanic shop business and, and auto glass business so much that I was like, okay, I, I, I can't focus on real estate. No, more. I got 33 employees. We're doing, we're doing really good revenue numbers. I need to focus on this. I'm 25, 26 at the time. We're probably you know I'm, I'm, I'm probably making you know, $350,000, 400000 a year as a 25, 26-year-old. I'm like, shit, I, I need to focus on this. Well, I did that for probably four or five years um, and until I was about 30. And I did really well, you know, but I got burnout, right? I was having babies at the same time, uh, and I was working six days a week. My wife was complaining, you know saying look I, you, you're knocking me up every other year, and i'm you working every day and and I'm stuck with all these babies at home, even on Saturdays <laughs> um, so th- I think we had three, four kids by that time. Well, I knocked her up for the fifth time, she almost had a nervous breakdown and because she was like yeah I can't do this no more and you're gonna to have to change careers. Well, by the grace of God, kind of by chance, I got forced into changing careers anyway because 2014 came. and now for you guys that don't know what what's the significance of 2014 our our 2008 in South Louisiana was our was our um, our 2008 was our 2014, meaning that in 2014, the oil field collapsed. Because in 2008, we didn't, we didn't have that like, huge, huge crash here in the South because we, we were heavily dependent on oil and gas, and oil field boomed during the 08 crisis, the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. So, but in 2014, we, oil went from $128 a barrel to $28 a barrel, and we lost thousands of jobs. And b- by that time, I had a massive amount of fleet accounts from the oil field. And we started losing massive amounts of revenue. In addition to that, I had bought up, I had, you know, I had, like four or five years had passed since I had bought all those shops. And I had, since then, I got back into real estate and I bought about $3 million worth of single family homes. But at the time, I still didn't know what I was doing because I wasn't going direct to seller. I didn't know about the wholesale game yet about, you know, direct to seller marketing, getting heavily discounted properties for motivated sellers. I was just making 10, 20, offers on MLS with a realtor until I found something that stick and was buying something for 80 to 85 cents on the dollar, which is, you know, marginal at best. So I bought 30, 30 of those houses and we rented them all out and it was good when things were good. But when 2014 came, half of those workers were all field workers. They, you know, I lost half my portfolio of the rentals. Because those are nice, high-end houses. I was buying $150,000 houses for two hundred dollars renting them out for $1,500 to $2,000. Those, those are the only people that could afford $1,500 to $2,000 was all field workers. Most of those guys got wiped out by the uh, the crash and they lost their jobs. So basically, I, thought I was I was up shit creek because my shop started losing revenue. Um, all of our all-field accounts were either going bankrupt or moving to Texas. And then all of the rentals I had bought were about half of them quit paying me. And by the grace of God, I, I, I found out what wholesaling was just by snooping around on YouTube and looking and finding out like, Hey, I, cause I knew that I wanted to get into something else. And I knew it. I wanted it to be real estate. I just didn't know what I didn't know about wholesaling. I came across this, this black guy on YouTube. He, he was, uh, he called himself the guru, not a guru. And I thought he was really cool. He's going around showing checks, making 30, 40 grand wholesaling. I was like, wholesaling houses I think is that about? So watched a bunch of his stuff. And I was like, man, this makes a lot of sense. I can do this. So on the side, I was going to actually wholesale the house just off of YouTube, just learning by chance. I made $2,500 in my first deal. No big deal. But I was like, there's money in this. So I hired, I said, let me go ahead and hire some mentors. I hired three mentors back to back to back. My uh, first mentor stole $50,000 from me, Fabian Calvo, that low life sack of shit from California, had him arrested. Um, and my second mentor was a great mentor. I crushed his program 30 days after his program, I, I made $47,000 on my on, in, in my, on like just right after his program, but to back up on my first mentor, he, he got, it was a guy that I hired. He was a great mentor for a bunch of people for years, but I, I, I hired him at the wrong time. He got on methadone right about an and Oxycontin. Right about the same time that I hired him, and it was just bad time. He was a great guy. He had tons of followers, great content, but he got a hold of my American Express and was charging, he, he charged $47,000 worth of charges on my credit card, and it took a year before my CPA caught it because he was just charging $500 here, $1,000 there, and it was on my company card from my uh, my Quick Lubes, and I never caught it until a year later. Got most of that money back, had him arrested, he, he no longer is in the business, obviously, but... So be careful who you hire, right? You never know. But this, the second guy I hired was the great guy, taught me a lot. I crushed his program, freaking crushed it. And I hired another guy, crushed his program. I was posting, you know, $30,000, $40,000 checks in the, in the Facebook group. I was, I was slaying it. But I come to find out, I was like, man, I'm in the wrong business. You know how many oil changes I got to do to make thirty grand? You know, I might have an hour or two hours of work in this deal. I made $30,000. You know how many break jobs, tune-ups, oil change, and glass repairs I do to net $30,000? I mean, I had 33 employees at the time, a lot of problems. You know, I'm dealing with, I'm not dealing exactly with Harvard graduates when you're dealing with car wash attendants, mechanics, quick lube attendant, and you're dealing with the general public. It's a tough, tough business, right? It'll wear on you. So a light bulb went off on my head. I'm like, dude, I'm working too hard. I need to focus all of my attention on real estate. So I, I went, I talked to all my managers at my four locations I said, Hey, listen, I threw them the keys. I said, don't call me unless somebody dies. I'm focusing on this because I no. had made. I had made like, you know, I was making thirty or $40,000 a month, $50,000 a month wholesaling part-time while still working at my shops. And I was, and at the at the time, I was losing about 20 to, I started losing twenty to $30,000 a month between all of my stores and all of my rentals because the oil field had crashed and we were losing, we were losing all our fleet accounts. So about six months into that, I, I it started off, so I was losing five, then 10, then 15. It got up to 25, 30 grand a month. And, but, but by the grace of God, I was, I, I started hustling wholesaling and it was a, it was a perfect storm because wholesaling does really well and is inducive to an environment where the economy is not doing well because you have a lot of motivated sellers. So you had all, everybody else losing their houses and calling me wanting to sell, you know, give her to their property. So I was, I had tons of leads, tons of motivated sellers. And I was wholesaling all the houses that were going into foreclosures, making a you know, 40, 50, 60. I got up to making 80, 100 grand. And I was covering all my losses. And that's when, once I got up to making 70, 80, 100 grand a month, I, I, I told my wife we sell all the shops. We put all the shops to sale, put all those single family homes that I had overpaid for, that I had barely any equity anymore because the market had pulled back about 20% and um, slowly sold off all our shops, did well. And I had a nationwide franchise uh, big oil chain. Uh, it's called uh, not Jiffy Lube, but the other one. Um, anyway, one of the bigger name brands bought one of my shops, made a good amount of money on that deal with 1031 exchange it into a beach house in Destin, Florida. And then I was able to sell off the rest. I still got one. So I actually have one in the shop that's still losing like ten twelve thousand dollars a month. I'm like $900,000 in the hole to that, to that shop over the past seven years. But I'm, I'm actually supposed to have a buyer for it, hopefully the next couple of weeks to, um, for that shop. But so basically, uh, did all that, got out of the, got all the shop business, got rid of all those, most of those single family homes. And then I did so well in those coaching programs. I was posting checks and then I had all their students. So the two mentors I had hired inbox me, Hey man, I said, how well, you're doing, can you help me? Well, I was helping all those, uh, those guys. And I was like, oh, I can't, man, I should, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my coach's job. Well, my coach asked me to go work in their sales department part time. Cause he saw that I was good at sales. So I started working for two of my mentors in their sales department, enrolling students for them. So I got to see the back end of a sales department on the coaching side for real estate. I started selling, I was making 10, 12, a grand a month, working an hour a day, two hours, taking some of their calls, just enrolling their students. And I was wholesaling. Okay. puppers, get down. And I was wholesaling. So, I, so I was like, shit, um, why am I making these coaches all these, this money? I, I was like, I, they're they're accent i'm enrolling them and they're still inboxing me on the side asking for help I'm, like, Shit, I'm gonna start my own coaching company right so i started my own coaching company and then um right around that time i forget it was about 2015 or 16 i heard about this or 2014 i heard about this guy named grant cardone because he was from my neck of the woods here in south louisiana he was from lake charles about an hour away and we actually had some mutual friends that we knew so i started following him read i read his 10x book and um and, and I was like, man, this guy, is, uh, he's a coon-ass just like me, right? And um, I, I'm going to I, – I like this guy. Sounds like me, kind of. And he, he's got uh, a lot of the same values and, and beliefs. Where he, I heard he was putting on this thing called the 10X Roadcon. This is the very first one he put on in Miami. So me and my wife went, sat in the front row, got the most expensive tickets. They were like $20,000. I got to sit by Michael Jordan's mentor the whole time during the conference, uh, Tim Grover.
0: Yeah. He's a beast, man. I love him. I just read his book winning.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I just ordered his book. Matter of fact, I got it on my, uh, my desk right here to read next. And um, I got to sit by him for two days and and network. And I was like, I was, I was blown away, man. I was like, Frank, this is like the most badass mastermind conference I've ever went to. Well, after the conference um, went to Grant's office and and started telling him what I was, what I was doing with wholesaling. He was, he was really excited. He's like, man, this, you know, as I do apartments, I ain't never even heard of wholesaling. He goes, you need to, you need to teach this on my platform to my followers. I think it would give them a lot of value. So um, got hooked up with him, did a couple of interviews with him at his office and started putting out content in, in partnership with him on wholesaling. And uh, that guy kind of blew up into a, you know, a, a lot of followers and people started following me on the wholesaling side and started teaching content there and coaching kind of blew up. And then from there I started wholesaling and I got a bunch of students Started teaching them, and then I was taking the, the best students out of my program, all the studs, and I was partnering with them, and that's how I scaled my wholesaling and flipping business. So throughout the South, and well, now we're nationwide, and I have all these partners, and you know we're flipping and wholesaling across the whole U.S. And then I started taking all that cash and um, wanted to dump it into something, and I was super careful about what I wanted to dump my money into because I got hammered with single family homes. Then when I had bought from you know back in and when I was in my early thirties, I was like I want to be ultra careful. Well. About four and a half years ago, I read an article by Warren Buffett, and he said mobile homes are going to be the wave of the future because they're the last vestiges of affordable housing. And that made a lot of sense. And he named out all the things, right? He named out why all, all these people getting out of college are strapped with, with student debt, inflation or um, income's not keeping up with inflation. Baby boomers are all retiring and downsizing, getting rid of their single family homes, moving into, you know, 55 and over communities. So they're going to be buying a lot of mobile homes that you see in Florida with all these 55 and over communities that are all mobile homes that older people move. People are moving in. Um, still, we talked about student debt. There's like uh, $2.3 trillion worth of student debt that, that can't be paid off. And, and the average income of these people getting out of college, they can't afford a 250 or even $150,000 house. Um with a mortgage car note, having babies, they just can't afford it. So that made a lot of sense to me because I felt like I missed the boat on apartments. I mean, let's call it what it is. I mean, if you didn't get in the the apartment ban five, 10 years ago, I mean, I remember when you used to better buy apartment complex for a 10 or 12 cap that doesn't exist no more. Like you're going to buy a a apartment at a five or six cap almost in the hood. Now, like it's ridiculous. And in a really good areas of selling for a two and a half, three cap, that just doesn't excite me. So for me, that made a lot of sense. And I was like, man, I see mobile home parks all over the place here in South Louisiana. So I started telling people, hey, I want to, I started talking to real estate, if you see a mobile home park, uh, or actually i take that back. But it, it was funny when I started putting my attention on mobile home parks, I had a realtor just by chance, like I think maybe a month or two later, bring me a mobile home park say, hey, man, I, I don't know. I know you buy houses and you're, you know, you're doing real estate. He goes, but I have nobody. I didn't even know that would want to buy this. It's this a 24 year mobile home in Lafayette parents had died and gave it to the kids. They don't have anything to do with it. When look at it, I was like, man, this is crazy. I just read that article by Warren Buffett. And I kind of want to get into mobile homes. You know, what's the chances of this? Well, I look at it, it's priced at 405. It's getting $7,800 a month in rent. And the rents were like at 450, 500, super low average rent. In that area is like 650, 700. And they were missing like seven trailers out of the 24 units that you can put trailers in. And for me, I'd always get leads through my wholesaling business of these mobile homes to be moved that I had no use for because who wants to buy just a mobile home without the land? I said, I bet you if I buy this mobile home park, I could use the empty spots and haul in trailers that I get from a wholesaling business of people that are wanting to sell the trailers to be moved. And I could buy these trailers for pennies on the dollar. And sure enough, so I said, you know what, I'm going to buy this mobile home park. So I bought the mobile home park, started rehabbing it, raising the rents and, I, and all the, the leads that would come through for, for mobile homes to be moved. I was buying mobile homes for $1,500 to $2,500, moving them for another two grand, setting them up for another three grand and putting another two grand into them. I was into them for like 10, 12 grand and I would get 700 and 750 bucks a month in rent. And I was yeah. like, dude, if if I, if I keep doing this, like this is crazy cash flow. So finished rehabbing that park. I took the rents from 7,200. Right now, that park gets about fifteen seven right now, and I and I put maybe one hundred twenty thousand dollars that park. I'm all in that park five hundred twenty five thousand. I don't owe that now. I mean, I put debt on it. I probably owe like three fifty on it. But that park generates fifteen seven. So, leading to all that, light bulbs off on my head, and I say, hey, you know what? I'm not screwing with anything besides mobile home parks. So I just put my head down and I bought up as many mobile home parks as I could, and. You know, here I sit, you know, four years later, we, we own about 350 units. Um, I'm not saying I don't buy single family homes, uh, but we, we we focus, or if, if I am going to buy a single family home, it's going to be a short term vacation rental on, on a piece of water, on a good piece of real estate on the water because the Airbnb, it makes a lot of sense. We can make that cash over really, it really well. So we focus mainly on mobile home parks right now and obviously wholesaling and and, uh, flipping nationwide. We take all that cash that we generate and we, we take all our active income and we just shove it into passive income via mobile homes and mobile home parks. We buy these mobile home parks that are distressed and we, and we buy mobile homes, we pay cash for them for five, 10, 15 grand. And we just, we just keep shoving them into the parks debt free on, on the mobile homes individually that we buy that we put into the parks with the empty spots. And we're just building up massive equity and cash flow. And I'm just going around trying to make mobile home parks great again, tell everybody that they're, uh, they're being scammed by buying all these single family homes. I say scam, they're, they're doing it the hard way, right? Because these mobile home parks are cash flow cows, right? I, everybody's like, well, Chris, that's, that's trailer park trash. No, man, it's trailer park cash. I can buy a mobile home for 10 grand and get 800 bucks a month for it. And you're buying a $100,000 house, or say maybe even a, a an eighty eighty thousand dollar house, getting a thousand. Well, who's making more money? The guy that paid ten grand or fifteen grand getting eight hundred, or the guy that that paid eight eighty thousand that's getting eight hundred to a thousand. So it's uh, it just makes sense, right? It makes sense, you know, financially from a cash flow perspective. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of where my journey. There's a fifty foot view for the past kind of ramble there for twenty minutes, but.
2: Hey, it's all right, man. It's a hell of a story. Uh, I mean, right. there, there was like ups and downs and stuff. That was awesome. You got a really cool backstory. I love it. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of touch on a couple of things you just went over. Um, you know, your coaching program. I, uh, I, I looked on your website today. It looks like an awesome program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So
1: basically, we, uh, we teach people the fundamentals and the basics, right? You know, how to market, how to negotiate, how to um, find buyers, how to find sellers. So
2: Does it teach to replicate your pro your program that you've employed or what?
1: Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, there's levels and gradient scales of real estate investing, just like there is gradient scales of learning and you go to high school, right? I don't try to teach people nationwide wholesaling if they're just getting started, right? Or even regional wholesaling and flipping. You should start with local backyard wholesaling, like grassroots fundamentals, like direct mail, bandit signs, maybe some Facebook ads, cold calling in your backyard to get the fundamentals down and and you need to talk to a thousand motivated sellers before you, before you even get to a point where you, Hey, let's take this thing regional or let's take this thing nationwide. You got to build up unconscious competence, meaning skills. And the way you do that is repetition, thousands Mm of calls, thousands of sellers. So we, we teach that first and then we graduate them. Hey, like, why don't you learn how to raise? We'll show you how to, you know, do a a whole tail where it's, it's a light rehab. You guys probably know what a whole tail is. It's not a full rehab. I don't tell, I don't advocate for rehabs that they try to glorify that shit on HDTV with a hot blonde and you know, the, the tall, beautiful man that, and they, 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 they just, they make millions of dollars in California and they don't have any problems. It's all horse shit, right? Flippins for the birds.
2: Sledgehammers, Like it's not even. That yeah.
1: Fun. Yeah. Like, dude, it, that's not real. Like I flipped a lot yeah. of houses. Like that shit ain't that, that shit ain't that cool. <laughs> Wholesaling and wholetailing is the, is the way to go. Now, will we flip a big house? If, yes. If there's massive, massive margins and we can absolutely steal it, yes, we'll do it. But we don't, we're not, a, we're not a really a flipping company. We're more of a turn and burn, 5, 10, 15, 20,000 max rehabs and, mostly, and, and, and other than that wholesale. So that's kind of what we teach. And then we, um, from there, we teach them how to, how to raise private money. And then from there, we teach them how to get into land development. And then from there, you should learn how to do buy and hold.
0: Okay, nice. So as far as your sales career, would you say that you got, obviously you got started selling cars back in the day. So you're what, how old are you now? Like 40? Yeah, I'm so, 40. 40. So you've been doing this obviously like almost 30 years being, being in sales. So, what Can you tell our viewers where, where are some, some different places that they can go, like where you got started? Did you read books? Did you obviously the internet wasn't around back in the day, but like, how did that was, are you a natural born uh, entrepreneur or was that developed? I guess that's the question. Well,
1: I mean, no, I mean, I think I had the willingness and drive to, to want to make, make money, but is anybody born a natural salesman? Maybe so. Um, I think I I had a lot of energy. I don't know if I like, I ain't that bright. I'm not that smart. I think I have a work ethic that'll outwork most people. And I think that's really my secret weapon. But I think as a, um, as somebody wants to get into sales, my background, I think would help me. I mean, this is a good piece of advice for people is when I was in college, I went and waited tables and that was probably my first training on sales. I think waiting tables, I think every kid should learn how to wait tables. It forces you to communicate. It forces you to deliver service. It forces you to, to, um, serve people at a high level. And I think that was the, I mean, that was, I mean, I, I went, I, I worked at Outback Steakhouse for two years in college. Um, I worked at Copeland's. I don't know if you know what Cop- Copeland's is. It is a Southern steakhouse, worked for Copeland's for a year. And I think that I would say that was my first official training, right? And uh, that helped me out tremendously. It, it forced me to talk to people. Um, shit. I mean, my communication class in college, I think I almost flunked it. I had to get up and speak in front of people. I, you know, I was so nervous talking doing a presentation that uh, almost threw up. You know, and, and it, it, it. So, am I a born natural speaker? Am I a born natural, good communicator? No, I think it's. Um, I think it's. It's pursued. It's learned. It, it's. It's honed in. It's a skill like anything else. Are people more outwardly energetic and outwardly, you know, overt than most people? Sure. You know, there's a lot of people that are introverts. I'm definitely not an introvert. Um, but as far as sales skills, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you, there's tons of, uh, ways to learn how to sell. I, 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 think I honestly say that, that, that was, that was my bedrock waiting tables as as, as stupid as that sounds. No, it makes
2: complete sense, man. I, I it, it, you also get rewarded for that good customer service. You get rewarded for building those relationships with tips, you know, exactly. exactly. The better you do, the more you get paid, you know, it's just, yep. Pretty simple. But yeah, it's definitely someplace where everybody should start. You know, that's your first step in actually earning, I don't know, your surplus, you know, because there's that minimum wage set for some reason already. Now, how much more can you make just by being kind, just by doing a good job? You know, you're going to find right. out.
1: And, and, I think over, and I think over time, you, just, you, div- you get better and better at sales. You develop your own, you know, you, you take and steal from other people's techniques and you kind of build in your own way of doing it. I don't think there's one set way. I think it's based on your personality. I think to be a really good salesman, you know, I'm 40 years old now. I've got a lot of sales experience. I've started a lot of businesses, good, bad, ugly. Some really did well. Some didn't do well. I think sales boils down to two things. I think it's the ability to not sound like you're a salesman. And to have good intentions. Right. When you're trying to, if, if you've got good intentions, people, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're a feely touchy kind of species, right? We, we feel people's intention. You know, when somebody has been a slimy salesperson, like I think that the way to sell is to not try to sell. Right. And not put, put any pressure. I'm not a high pressure salesman. I don't think that high pressure shit works. I think it just pushes people away. You offer an opportunity and you offer them the benefits and you make them make a decision. And when you allow them to make the decision themselves, they want to do business with you. You force them to make a decision. It's like chasing a dog. You chase the dog it runs away. You walk away from it. They'll come back to you. And you have, and if you have good intentions, people feel intentions. I'm huge on intention. I'm a very intentional guy. Everything I do has meaning. Everything I do, I do has an intention behind it. And if you are a very intentional with the way you move, the way you speak and the way you act, people will naturally gravitate to you and want to do business with you.
0: 100%. Absolutely. That's good advice right
2: there.
0: 100%. Absolutely. That's good advice right there. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to deal with a, with a shitty used car salesman. You know what I mean? Just trying to push some down the throat. So kind of like what they do in the media today, pushing all these narratives and garbage, uh, Critical race theory and things of that nature, which that's a whole different ball game. We ain't <laughs> going there. All right, so say say someone someone like us, we're you know we've been doing this with me and my brother about ten years. Say we wanted to partner up with you, what do we what do we got to do to say hey, we got a deal? How, you know, how do we get this going? Say we wanted to partner up. Do you need accredited investors? Are you working with?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you wanted to partner up as a money guy, then you know we, we could. You know, we can syndicate a deal, and you can be an equity partner. Um, that's one way. If you wanted to be boots on the ground, then I would suggest to get some training from me first. Because I mean, look, I'm gonna be honest, with you, I get people sending me deals all the time, and I don't even look at most of them unless they've went through some training or I know they have a background of understanding what a deal looks like. Because I mean nine out of 10 deals are not deals. Right. And I I found, I found myself years ago underwriting other people's deals and doing all the work for them. And they, they didn't even know what they were doing. They would just send me anything. You know, every, if it's on MLS or it's for retail, like it's gotta be a deal. Right. And you gotta know what you're looking at. So I I try to, this is why, look, I I started a coaching company selfishly, not just to make money, but to be able to scale my portfolio by partnering up with people across the country. Cause then I can be eyes and ears. They can look through the lens of what I want to see and what I want as a deal. From my training, so I would suggest getting some training. Come to a mastermind, come to one of my boot camps. The next boot camp we have over here is September 24th and 25th in Lafayette, Louisiana. It's a two-day boot, make mobile home parks, great boot camp, no point intended. And <laughs> uh, you know that's that. That's what I would suggest, right? Um, so I partner up with my students. I've got we've got uh, three deals right now under contract from two of my students. Uh, two in Indiana. We just put in a contract yesterday, and I, and I got a 28 unit in Pensacola from another student.
0: Right on and you just had a closing. You just came from the closing today, right? Before we jump yep. on.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Always be closing. Love it, brother man. Well, we definitely appreciate you coming on, yeah. Chris. Definitely this is a lot of value for our for our viewers. Hopefully you guys learned some uh some stuff here. If you want to get in contact with Chris, how do they get a hold of you, Chris?
1: Yeah, they can go to chrisrude.com. They can uh book a call there, or they can follow me on Instagram at real estate root, or they can follow me at Chris Root Entrepreneur on Facebook. Um if uh you know if you follow me, I'm just gonna forewarn you I'm not uh politically correct. I speak my <laughs> mind. I, I don't care what you think. Um I tell you how I think because it's my platform and you may not like that. I, I don't I don't pander to a base. I don't um I don't agree with what's going on in the country right now. Um and I just frankly don't like communists. So uh, if you I mix my political views with my business views, because there's a reason why I, I don't want to be associated or even affiliated with anybody that has that mentality of a communistic society that thinks that it's OK to uh, chop off your wanker and, and, and do all these crazy things that are being pushed down our kids throat. Or even just like you mentioned, critical race theory or, you know, I know I know enough to know about history to know that communism is a trick played by rich people to trick the populace into usurping power and control from them by tricking them into thinking that communism is some utopian ideology that will solve all a man's problems. And it's done nothing but kill hundreds of millions of people across the country via the Soviet Union through Stalin, via Mao Zedong through China, via Venezuela, via Cuba. It goes on and on. You don't see people leaving a communistic, uh, you don't see people leaving a, a capitalistic society like America, where all, we have all these rights and freedoms to go live in in a um, in a communistic society, right? So it kind of bothers me when I see all you we have all these young kids being tricked, and I'll say it, they're being tricked into thinking that socialism and communism is going to solve all their problems, and it won't. It's going it, to they're going to lose more and more of their rights and freedoms, and uh, possibly their lives if we look at history and, and kind of gauge what's going on the past hundred years with communism, it hasn't worked. It's a failed social experiment. And I'm not saying the communistic, uh, you know, way of life is perfect, but it sure beats uh, cutting your wanker off and being a low life and living off the government.
0: Oh man. I, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hey, I, I made a pledge on Facebook a couple months ago. I put it up. I said for any communist that hates this country, I'll pay for your one way tickets. The whole thing, whatever it costs, I pledged it. No one's taken me up on it yet. So <laughs> would you be open to committing yourself to uh, sending a communist out of, out of this great country on your dime, one-way ticket?
1: I say we trade out all the Cubans that are you know, wanting freedom. Let's take, let's take all, all the Cubans that are trying to flee communism and let's swap them out for all the communists living in America. I bet you they won't do it. If they, if they think communist system is so great, Kamala Harris and all those other low-lifes, With you know, with AOC that are beating the drum for communism, I I bet you they wouldn't go to Cuba. They wouldn't. It's a lie. It's a trick.
0: They they wouldn't. I'm I'm hundred percent with you. And we came. I was born in Uzbekistan and lived in Russia, so we got to see firsthand how that shithole is. So definitely don't want to live in that kind of place. So glad to have you as a patriot, man. And that's kind of really why we connected in the first place. I was like, man, I started following you, watching your lives. Like, man, this is like comedy and education all in one. It really is. Every time I watch it, you and Big Mama, you guys are in there you know, sitting on the beach, sitting on your beach house or whatever. And, and, uh, it's like comedy and education all in one. I enjoy watching it. I really do.
1: Thank you, man. We, we try to, we, we try to educate people on, uh, on on the fears of, of what, I mean, I got five kids just like you probably got kids. I mean, look, I I want them to have the same opportunities as me and, and people kind of get upset with me sometimes saying, Chris, why don't you stick to real estate, man? Why are you talking political stuff? Because if I don't talk political stuff, we won't better do real estate, buddy. In, in a communist society, you, you ain't gonna have the opportunity. You ain't. You're not gonna be able to scale a portfolio of rental properties in a communistic
2: moratorium on a big Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's what
2: I mean, it's exactly. But tenants don't have. To that,
1: they. They, they people don't. People don't understand the greatest threat to the entrepreneur right now it is not cash flow. It's not my next deal. It's the communist takeover, folks. If these low-life communists get what they want, they will destroy capitalism, entrepreneurship, and the high-performance American patriot person that's a hard worker who wants to have an awesome life and make a lot of money. That's, a, that's become a dirty word, right? Communism is the biggest threat to entrepreneurs right now, and this is why I'm so loud and obnoxious. And I say that because I know enough about communism to know that it's not good. I've read, listen, I, I can show you a picture. I mean, I've got, I've got 40 books right there up on that counter right here. I, I could probably switch over that that I've read. Uh, well, I don't know if switch. does it switch? Let's see. You, you see in that corner right there, that's all books, that's all history books. And, I, and most of them are about communism, right? That, and I've read enough books to know that that's not, that's not what you want to have in a free and uh, capitalistic society, America is an idea, and it was an idea to, to have personal liberty, freedom and rights and, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and communism takes all that away from you and tries to force what they think their ideal scene of happiness is. And it's a it's a utopian nightmare of everybody has a little so that nobody has a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to accept the average. You know I always want to pursue excellence, and I, I feel like through communism and socialism you have to settle for average because that's all everybody is going to get so. yep
1: it it disincentivizes people like me and you from even working right you because you, you can't no matter how hard you work you're not you're not rewarded for the fruits of your labor there there is a ceiling you can only go so far right yeah so. I, I, I've got I've got a buddy I know from uh, from China. I won't mention his name, but he's a. You, if I told you his name, you probably know him. He uh, his parents came from China. They had started a, a business out there, did really well. The Chinese took over back in the I think it was the 50s. 50s, Yeah, Mao Zedong overthrew the uh, the nationalist Chinese and, and turned into a communist country. They seized every business in China. His family left. They lost everything they had. They went over to North um, uh, Vietnam. They went over to Vietnam and started their business over there. Around, I think the Seoul area, South Vietnam, and started a business over there. The communists took over over there. They lost everything again. They fled to America, where they live now. And he's like, Chris, is like, I've been. This is my third time. My family said this is going to be the third time they're beating the drum for socialism and communism over here in America. We've lost everything twice because these people don't even know what they want, right? And that, that's that's what they're they're beating the drum for, right? They just don't know what they don't know. Right. These young kids think that uh, everything should be free. You shouldn't have to work for it. And uh, they're being brainwashed.
2: Well, so what I what I'm seeing and honestly, um, on the Fourth of July, I got one of the most beautiful text messages uh, about someone's patriotism and their love for America. And it's from somebody who came from Myanmar. Uh, He fought his way and migrated to America and he he loves America. You know because we opened up so many doors as soon as he as soon as he made it you know and that's one thing i'm noticing is the people who actually migrate here legally are in love with america You know, absolutely so never ever had to experience any type of uh real real opposition yep. they're the ones who hate america and think that america is is a terrible place in the world you know they think it's earth's butthole but really it's this is the most beautiful
0: country in the world but it does fall it does fall to some degree on the parents too i mean i come here to to see like the kids are so entitled they expect everything you know like no you need to get your ass up and you need to go get a job you're not going to be living in my basement playing video games all your life johnny and get the hell out like well, i uh, think that's where our society is just soft i feel like we just gotten so yeah soft. Well,
1: that that's a great point you know i mean i think i think society as a whole runs in cycles right you know We come from the, you know, I think the reason America is so great right now is because it it came from the, you know, the baby boom generation when even their parents before that, they had a really hard life building into America and make America what it is now. You know, it goes back to that old saying, you know, tough times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men. And I think we're in that bottom cycle of strong men creating good, uh, good times. And now our kids have benefited from that cycle. They've had it easy because they're, they're, they're riding on the backs of great men who made society great and easy. And now it's made weak men. And those weak men are making what? A, a weak society. And so we'll probably see a crash of every great civilization's had it. I think we live in the modern-day Roman Empire. We'll see a massive crash. I don't think America will be what it is in the next 10, 20 years, I think we'll probably see some balkanization. We may even see some civil unrest. This country may break up into three or four different countries, maybe two, who knows? Um, But you see it all over. It's happening. It happened in Europe, you know, 80 years ago, 60 years ago where you had balkanization. All you could do is study history, guys. I I study history and philosophy.
2: Say again? I said even recently with Brexit. they tried to. there you go. You know, because they weren't happy with what was going on. so yeah, I mean, it could happen. It could happen in America. I just hope that there's certain values that maintain throughout America. Um, and since we're on politics, I mean, I I'm huge on the Second Amendment. You know, I think that it's very important that we maintain our right to have and carry protection because guns are called the great equalizer for a reason. You can you can put up fifteen pounds on a bench press and still take on somebody who puts up four hundred and fifty pounds on a bench press.
1: That's right. So, it's, there's a reason why there's a reason why we still have some beacon of freedom right now as opposed to Australia. If you pay attention to what's going on in Australia and Canada, know Australia is locked down in their house. They're, the military is going door to door and forcing people to stay in their house. They can't even leave their house. Why you think mm-hmm. do you honestly and the, the Australians lost their rights in 1993 they took all the guns. If, they, yeah. if, we didn't, if we didn't have our Second Amendment right now, we would be Australia right now. You could take that to the bank. Politicians are, are going, their money, they're, they're power hungry right now. And whatever they can turn, a, I forgot who, who said, never let a great crisis go to waste, right? And I yeah. think this COVID thing is, a, is being used as a power grab, a crisis to usurp our powers with the cover of COVID as the justification for stealing all of our basic Bill of Rights and constitutional rights that our founding fathers gave us. And you're right. The Second Amendment was not made so that we can go hunting, guys. The Second Amendment was made to keep tyrannical governments abound from stealing our basic freedoms, and our founding fathers knew that because they came from all those tyrannical governments from Europe and England, and they knew that this would happen 200, 300, probably didn't know the date, but they knew eventually that the United States would have some type of crazy politician corrupt power that would try to usurp more power and become a tyrannical dictator and they knew that and that's why they gave us a second amendment specifically for what the hell is going on right now
0: absolutely so but (laughs) yeah i seen ammo is back in stock here in ohio at least so (laughs) yeah but we'll get some about
2: three boxes at a time which is kind of a bummer so
1: yeah but you know some people buy gold and silver i think us common peasants we like uh lead right we like we like the the third <laughs> I
2: like
1: the, the third uh metal I, I can't I can't eat gold and silver although I do like silver and I do invest in silver eagles but um I invest heavily in 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 the, the other precious metal called lead I, I, I can eat lead via an animal right so I mean right. I think people I think people need to wake up to what's going on I don't advocate you know I'm not some you know unrealistic person where i advocate second amendment we should go around shooting people that's not what i'm even saying you know second amendment is to protect you and your family and your liberty and your rights to free speech because the second amendment was made to protect the first amendment and as you know the first amendment is being stomped all over right now by big tech hell they're yeah. probably watching this right now who knows um it, it, it it's, it's becoming so ridiculous that Something is going to give, I think a lot of people, I'm not the only one who has an eerie feeling in their stomach that something ain't right in America. And it, it's, you, you, I think people need to buckle up. I think people should be, you know, get their house in order, meaning they need to stockpile food. They need to have at least a nine millimeter, an AR-15, not to go freaking, you know, play Rambo or the zombie apocalypse, but just for basic security. Because I think we're going to have some rough times in America in the next five, 10 years. I'm not a doom and gloomer but I am an opportunist. I think if you look at it from a standpoint, it's gonna be the greatest opportunity that, that comes. It may get really scary and really rough, but uh, you know I am an optimist. I, I hope to, to, to benefit from you know, this massive wealth transfer that's gonna happen and, and position myself not to get hurt by uh, preparing, right?
2: So you're saying invest in bullets and Bitcoin, right? Oh, don't get me
1: started, Bitcoin, man. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't, if you, if you follow me, Bit, bit let's just call it bitcoin's a scam guys if you can't tell me who who bit who's the owner of bitcoin i can't feel it touch it see it but all you can tell me is some guy that lives in the japanese mountains back in northern japan and he mines bitcoin and gives it to the rest of the world dude you're you're a moron i mean
0: <laughs> well I, you know, I, but- that's how we close. That's how we're going to close it yeah. out right there. Be careful about Bitcoin. I don't have a single dime in Bitcoin myself. So call me all stupid. Sets. I don't care. I'd rather go ahead and get me a house, somebody I can visit, a tenant I can go see and see what the property looks like. So I'm with you, brother, man. I'm, I'm all in actually seeing it in my hand, what I you know, what it is rather than just some fictionary bullshit, you know, butterfly.
1: Yeah. It, yeah and, and I think uh, there's a, there's a lot if you want intangible assets, meaning things you can't feel, see, and touch, get some allies. What is an ally? Somebody that exchanges value with you. Can't really see value in a sense. An ally's got your back. An ally helps you make money. An ally maybe helps you with advice, an ally, somebody that doesn't bullshit you or lie to you. That's what your friends do. Your friends, your friends are lying to you. Your friends are keeping you from taking your life to the next level. Your friends will sit there and get together with you and barbecue and drink a six pack and lie to each other about the glory days and, you know, fight and argue over who's rookie of the year. They they know the statistics of every baseball player and football player and college player, but they, they, they can't hardly pay their rent. They pay more attention to the statistics of of other people than they don't even know their own statistics in life. Right. They don't know how much money they're making. So that's what a friend does. Right. They, they, what's the byproduct of a friend. I don't have friends guys. Like I, I, I don't have friends. I don't, I don't hang out. I don't chill. I don't smoke weed with people. I don't drink, you know, I don't do all that horse. It's a waste of time, right? If I'm going to hang out and chill, there's four things that uh, constitute, you know, me spending my time or intention with somebody. And that's, uh, for one, you either come from my body. Two, you're having sex with me. And thankfully for Big Mama Rouge, she's the only person I have sex with. Three, they're giving me value. Or four, they're helping me make money. Otherwise, I ain't hanging out with you. And I don't care about you. I don't care about the... Your dog or your aunt. Your, I'm not into pleasantries. I don't. I don't sit there and just talk. Get together and talk. Like there's got You got to live an intentional life and live a life of increased value, right? So that's the difference between an ally and a friend. A friend will give you a hangover and bullshit you and, and lie to you. An ally will help increase the value of your life, your family's life, help you make money, and tell you the truth. And that's what I surround myself with. And that's why I go to masterminds. That's why I hire mentors. And that's why, like, for instance, you guys are my new allies, right? You're helping me promote my brand. There's a value exchange. I'm coming over here giving value for your audience. You're giving me a platform to better communicate with your audience. There's an exchange of value. Therefore, we're allies. That's what a true friend is. A true friend isn't somebody to get together and smoke smoke weed with. Waste time with. Waste time with, right? So that's a true – if you want to get into Bitcoin – Get rid of all your Bitcoin and start finding people, finding allies. Where you find those allies are masterminds, meetups, because it, it attracts a high quality caliber person. I think the highest quality people on the planet can go to masterminds because it costs money. There's a barrier to entry.
2: So this is a great conversation. And I'm, I know we're pushing the limits, but uh, I don't know if maybe we should bring you back on for another one. But I, I really wanted to ask you about your goals and where you see yourself. Where you see your business going in the next 10 years and, and what do you need to help get you there?
1: More allies. Okay. That's all I need. I mean, wow. I'm scaling
2: my... I figured we could transition into that because I, that was a great... Yeah, man,
1: I, I'm good. I, I got time. If you got time, we can keep rolling this. It's good.
2: I got time. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it, you know, for me, I, I, I mean, it, they always say, you, you, you know, your net worth is your network and all that. And I, I mean, it's kind of cliche, but it's, it's no bullshit. I mean, it goes back to, you know, who's got the most allies? And whoever's got the most allies wins, right? The right. reason the, re, the reason why people win wars, World War One and World War II, is not necessarily, you know, who's got the best weapons. Look at the Germans during World War II and even World War I. They had the most sophisticated technologies as far as weaponry, most sophisticated tanks, bombs. They had the their their soldiers are better trained. I mean, it took four superpowers just to take down Germany because they had the most ruthless, most sophisticated army on the planet. But what took them down they got out allied meaning they didn't have as many allies they got beat by sheer numbers they had russia england canada australia and united states all around them and they, they just so whoever went whoever has the most allies wins now that doesn't mean you should have friends with a ton of people i i don't I don't want to be friends with a bunch of people because a good ally is rare and valuable, and people that are rare and valuable are few and far between. So I just I look for the highest quality people on the planet. A lot of those people come through my coaching program that I, that I you know that I vet. They start doing well on my program, and then we partner up and we become allies. And I can scale my portfolio. They they lean on me. I lean on them. We both exchanging value because we're helping each other make money. And that's how I see myself in the future. I'm I'm finding the best quality people on the planet, partnering up with them in exchange and value. And that's how I'm going to, I'm only one man. I can only do so much. Right. I mean, but if I've got 20 people across the U S that are partnering with me, helping me buy assets and I'm helping them buy assets, I'm going to win. Cause I got the most allies.
2: That's what I'm talking about. And even so, so you were just talking about hiring people. Um, what, what qualities do you look for when you are hiring somebody? Do you look for someone who can fit, um, fit really well with your group of allies or do you look for someone who can just get the job done?
1: I mean, people that work, well, there's different, I have people that my partners don't really work for me. Like all the, all of my students are partners. They're not, you know, they're they're not employees. Yeah. They're, they're, they're more JV partners than they are employees. Now my employees that work in my office here in Lafayette, I mean, those, those are just, those are guys and girls that are, they get shit done. Right. You know, they're Mm -hmm. just, they're, I'm not good at doing paperwork. I ain't that smart. I can't do QuickBooks. You know, I can hardly fill out a contract or send an email. But I, what I know how to do is, you know, talk to a motivated seller and negotiate a deal, underwrite a mobile home park, or close the deal. Right? That's what I'm good at. I stay in my lane, and I just, I get, I get a really good team behind me. And and I think for a lot of people that maybe want to do the same thing I'm doing, their first hire should be a badass personal assistant. I've been having the same personal assistant for 15 years. She's a freaking. Uh, she's been with me for 15 years and she has been trained on how to do everything in the business. And she she was able to take away all the bullshit out of my life that that I don't want to do. Right. And all I do all day is look at deals that I want to buy and do things that are, you know, high value activities that make me a lot of money.
0: How do you, how do you retain someone for 15 years? Obviously the pay is probably an important factor, but other than that, there's got to be something more than just the pay. What,
1: two things. You- two things, and you'll be like, that's all, you, that's all you think with, and this is all I think with. It's a careful balance of freedoms and barriers. A, re- a person quits because either they have too much freedom in a job and they end up getting lost because they don't know what to do or they have too many barriers, meaning they're getting squeezed like we're getting squeezed right now by the communists. We're we're losing our freedoms because they're putting up too many barriers. When you have a careful balance of freedoms and barriers, meaning clear defined goals and expectations, you put them in a box and you define clear expectations. This is where we're going. This is how you're going to be involved. This is how you're going to benefit. That gives them in their mind parameters that they can think with and it's something they can push up against. Now, if they have too many barriers and not enough freedoms – they'll get overwhelmed. So you, it's a careful balancing act of freedoms and barriers. And I would say a tertiary thing is the overall vision and goal of where the company's going as a whole and how they're included and how they're going to benefit from what they're doing, working for you.
0: Okay. Interesting. So you didn't even mention pay at all. You, you focused on barriers. And I I mean, as far as obviously in today's society, where people are incentivized by the government to not even show up for work, you know, how, what are you using to incentivize people to, you know, to join the team? Obviously, as you keep growing next two, three, four, five years, how do you bring people on? Like what, 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 are the things, what are the benefits that they'll receive as a part of working with you? Obviously education, knowledge, wisdom, stuff like that. How important would you say pay is to somebody? Yeah. I mean,
1: it, I mean, it's, it's very important, but I think a lot of people overly, I mean, for me, I'm all about pay. Like I'm a money guy. Like I like, I like the game of money. A lot of people, Want more freedom? So I got, for instance, I got a lead maintenance guy that works for me. You know, he could probably go make more money offshore. But it, I mean, in fact, we had this conversation a couple of days ago. But he's like, I don't want to because I wouldn't be with my family. And he goes, I enjoy working for you because you give me a lot of freedom. Yeah, I don't make. Yeah, you know, I can go away across the shore and make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. He goes, but that's not as important to me as my freedom. So you got to find out what's important to that person. So uh, it's a careful balancing act of, of like I said. It's freedoms and barriers. And the pay comes with the amount of responsibility they take it. The more responsibility they take on, the more money they make. It's a direct correlation. I can't pay somebody that's uh, putting in QuickBooks you know, data entries, $100,000 dollars a year. That's not a high responsibility job, but you know, somebody that's working leads and closing deals and making, a, you know, making the company 50 grand a month in wholesale transactions, that's a high value, high responsibility. Well, let me back up too. Not even just that. I think for somebody that's watching this that wants to make a lot of money, I think it's communication skills, right? Whoever has the best communication skills makes the most money, right? That's why people that work behind a desk and all they do is just do paperwork and they complain about their boss because they're not making enough money. is because they don't communicate. All they do is do paperwork. You have to better be a good communicator. That's why acquisition guys make a lot of money and salespeople make a lot of money. It's just basic communication skills.
0: Do you, you employ any VAs now or is everything here in the United everything's,
1: States? Everything's in the United States. I don't believe in VAs from out of the country. I, I, I don't, I mean, I know people that, and maybe I don't know enough about that to even understand that, but I don't employ any VAs. All of our
2: girls work in the office
1: are from the States and live locally.
0: Huh.
2: Like locally in Lafayette or just yes. locally? No way. Nice. Look at that, keeping the money, keeping the money close by. Are they would they consider themselves coon ass as well?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We don't so hire anybody but coon asses.
2: <laughs> Excellent. And I know that's a badge of honor, you know. It's no insults or anything.
0: What like, does that mean? You no. got to Can you, what, what,
1: I, what, you, what? you know what I had a student ask me that the other day, like, hey, Chris, you might have asked this question, yeah, man. What's up? And he said the same thing. He's like, This is not, you know, a shot at you, but what is a coonass? And I said, Well. A coon-ass, and I had to call my dad to confirm, right? Because my dad's a typical, you know, he's a coonass, right? Right. He's a he's a backwoods Southern boy, born in Mississippi, raised in New Orleans, moved to Louisiana, and he he hunts and he could live off the land. He you know you, he could be in the middle of a swamp and his uh his you know his uh his motorboat breaks down and and he he would he could get duct tape, a pair of scissors, and a pencil and fix it, <laughs> and that's no kidding. Right, my dad, Char- my dad, Charlie Root is like the modern day MacGyver, right? He just, he just born that way, and that, and I would say a Kunass, you know, is just somebody that's from South Louisiana. It's very, yeah. And this is just keen to just South Louisiana, mostly the Lafayette, Katy, and area where I live. It's basically a, um, it's basically a person that is culturalizing the Cajun ways of living off the land, yeah. and yeah, living off the land family oriented man, hardworking, very Southern values of, uh, you know, work. And now, Let me back up even further behind that. How did they get the name Kunas from what, <laughs> and this, and this may be folklore. This may not even be true, but my dad told me, cause I had you guys, you know, I mean, I had another guy that was a, you know, a student of mine, actually same thing and had that call my dad. I was like, what is it? I, I gave you my definition of a Kunas, right? but where did that name come from from a historical point of view and supposedly back during the uh you know pre you know revolutionary days and and even or maybe even post like basically hundreds of years ago you know you ever seen i think it was maybe even who was it uh you see the the coon hat with the with the tail coming off of it yeah and I, a lot of people used to wear those hats hundreds of years ago the hunters and they called, what, what do you got on there? And I think they said, well, I got a coon ass on my head because it was a, a <laughs> raccoon with the tail. And huh. I don't know if that's true, but that's what my dad told me. And I, I, I because I, it was a Davy Crockett that I used to, not Davy Crockett or um, yeah, it was Davy Crockett. It, Davy Crockett had a, a, a coon ass tail, but I believe that that's kind of where that whole thing, I, I'm assuming our ancestors hundreds of years ago was wearing, you know, Coons on their head with the with the tail and ass and i mean the asshole's right there by the tail so i'm assuming right is that coon. where the mullet came from <laughs> <laughs> hey the louisiana people have mastered the mullet it's kind of i mean you'll see it s- still in the backwoods of some areas but it, it's kind of being phased out but we're, we're hoping to grow grow that out and not see that as much anymore but it still exists <laughs> you you'll meet joe dirt you'll you meet joe dirt you walk around here too long <laughs> the real life joe dirt
0: well, we'll have to come. We'll come to come visit you, brother, man. I've got my daughter. She's going to be born in just a couple of weeks. So I'm tying up the next couple of weeks. Won't be able to join you. But I definitely want to come join you, man. Come check you out. Come join a mastermind with you. And uh, man, we just really appreciate you uh, coming on today. Absolutely. Spending some time with us, adding so good much time. value for our viewers. And uh, we we'll hope to have you on again in the future.
1: Likewise. Yeah. I consider you guys new allies.
2: Right on. Back at you. Appreciate that.
0: All right, brother, man. Yeah, it was good talking to you. Comrade. All right. Chris Rude, Rude. I said that right, right. Rude or Rude? Rude, Rude. He's, he's not rude, guys. He's very, very polite. <laughs> That's right. Les les bons That's right. All right, brother man. Thank joining us. If you guys want to visit him, ChrisRude.com. Uh, find him on Facebook and all the other sites, and we'll see you on the next episode.